Back when I was at this absolutely tiny channel, it was 16,000 subscribers. And I sent a bunch of emails out to try and save some money. And AEM was the only company that responded. And I had a wideband gauge. They shipped it. It was there 48 hours in Bosnia. I was looking at it. And that's a moment that I will never forget. You know, they said, oh, we like your videos. And honestly, they were not that good. Welcome to the HPA Tune In Podcast. I'm Andre, your host. And in this episode, we're joined by the host of the Driving for Answers YouTube channel. If you haven't stumbled upon this channel before, then this is actually one of my favorites. I'll admit I don't watch a lot of YouTube channels, but this one has absolutely fascinated me because it manages to break down really complex automotive concepts and explain them in really simple terms. If you're wondering at this stage why I haven't actually used the host's name, it's because he wants to remain somewhat anonymous. And despite his almost 1 million strong subscriber base on YouTube, we are respecting that request. We jump into his backstory and find out whereabouts in the world he's come from and find out how he's got a very non-traditional tertiary education, certainly nothing related to physics or mechanical engineering, which is what I think anyone who's seen this channel before would expect. We'll also find how he used his automotive passion to essentially rescue him from his previous career path, one that he was not finding fulfilling. we find out how he turned this into a full-time gig and what he sees for the future. Before we jump into our interview, for those who are new to the HPA Tuned In podcast, hi Performance Academy is an online training school. We specialise in teaching people how to tune EFI, how to build wiring harnesses, how to build race engines. We also cover race car setup, race driver education and a number of other topics. You can find all of our courses at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. They're all delivered via high definition video modules that you can watch from anywhere in the world provided you've got an internet connection. This gives you the benefit of being able to learn from the comfort of your own place and you can learn at your own pace. All of our courses have a 60 day no questions asked money back guarantee so there's zero risk giving one of our courses a test drive and as a podcast listener you can use the coupon code PODCAST75 that will get you $75 off the purchase of your very first course. You'll find all of that information in the show notes. Alright let's get into our interview now. Welcome to the podcast, this is one that I really have been looking forward to, uh, love all of your videos and I'm really interested in finding out sort of how you got to that point, so, so let's start at the beginning and how did you actually build up an interest in cars in the first place? Well, when it comes to cars, well first of all, thanks for having me, it's a massive honor, I want to say I watched so many of your videos, absolutely awesome stuff, I strive to have one day that kind of quality, so I'm very happy to be here and very happy that you guys invited me. When it comes to cars, I mean cars and let's say machines and everything you know that moves and that can move and has an engine has been a passion really for as long as I can remember, starting with you know little hot wheels and micro machines to you know as I grew up, it sort of expanded um, one day when you know when I was already i think twenty six twenty five when I was able to actually purchase something. I decided that I could finally do what I wanted to do as, as a kid, you know, and that's basically own one of my hero cars from when I was young. And that list of hero cars is very extensive, but the one common denominator of the list is that it's pretty much 
Japanese cars from the 80s and 90s with pop-up headlights. I know it sounds childish, but there's an emotional connection. When I was a kid, when I would see one of those cars, for me, that was, you know, the 80s had this aura of the future is going to be awesome. Everybody had money to spend. It was an incredible time. And these cars sort of reflected this time of, you know, these are the cars we have now, but in 20 years, they're going to be flying. And but the engineers couldn't wait and the designers couldn't wait. So they tried to make them look like they're already in the future. And then you have this, it was an instant moment of falling in love as a kid. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to buy something. So this is your AW11 Toyota MR2 that we're talking about here? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, when I said I'm going to buy an old Japanese car from when I was a kid, I'm going to buy one. There was a list on it. We had the 100, uh, the 200 SX, you know, the S13. Uh, we had the first generation of the Mazda. We had the AW11. I had also, uh, you know, the, the older Supras that had pop-up headlights. Basically, I was looking for whatever I could find that was within my budget, which at that time was pretty modest, but good enough to buy something in a questionable condition. But being living where I live, you know, I do live in the Balkans in Bosnia. And the selection of these cars in Europe is absolutely pathetic. I mean, you, you guys over there in Australia and New Zealand, and I mean, in many other parts of the world, you have no idea how lucky you are. We're, we're very spoiled for choice, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's changing now. It's becoming, everything is becoming more and more expensive and harder to get, and it's all becoming rarity car show stuff. I'm interested, actually, with your access to so many European cars, and obviously, I'm assuming much, much easier to get hold of. What was the passion for the Japanese cars over European? There's a couple of reasons, probably. Uh, I'm a contrarian by nature. Everybody was like Volkswagen, diesel, whatever. And sort of, I always hated that. I mean, I don't hate anything, honestly. I, I respect all cars and all mechanics and it's all absolutely beautiful. And it's the diversity that I like. And But everybody was doing that and I kind of like, I want to be, you know, a bit different. But there's also this Japanese connection with, I watched like as a kid and still do when I can, when I have time, a lot of anime and these, you know, like 80s anime, they have these cars, they feature in there. And it's this, you know, dream of one day I'm going to be grown up and cool and have a red leather jacket and drive this car through a neon city. You know, somehow there's something about that when, as a kid, when you see it, it sort of etches into somewhere into your mind and you like can't get rid of it. And I probably when I'm old, that's still to me going to be this vision of coolness, of enjoyment, of I have no idea or whatever. So, yeah. All right. We're going to dive into that AW11 because that is a car that's near and dear to my heart. We're going to do that in a little bit more detail in a moment. But before we do that, let's sort of just come back one step because I've watched your videos and anyone who's listening who's watched them, it's very, very clear that you've got a high level of technical knowledge in physics and and engineering. And my assumption on this basis is that you've probably got formal qualifications in that area. Am I right or am I completely off the mark? Yeah, many people assume the same thing and many people think and refer to me even in the comments as an engineer might be a surprise or maybe even a hard pill to swallow for some people but I have zero formal engineering background nothing I never studied engineering of any kind my actual background is political science a bachelor's in international relations and I have a master's in democracy and human rights I worked for the government I worked for the European Union for some international organizations
organizations, including the UN and CDC and a bunch of others. That's been five and a half years of, of my career before I went full-time into YouTube about five years ago. I honestly, I had what you could call a successful career, but I absolutely hated most of that. No offense to anyone or anything. There's many people in that field who are trying to do good things, but there's also far more people who are trying to, especially in the governmental and even the non-governmental sector who are simply, there's this world of arbitrary rules, a lot of political influence. And I often spend months trying to get something off the ground, you know, trying to genuinely help my country. A lot of people from my university and from my degree, far too many times we have we have been buried and we have failed due to some absolute nonsensical political reasons. And one of the reasons why I got the car and started the whole thing was as a sort of vent for myself to have something that will make me happy to escape this world, which was really, really, really hard on me. And I think it cost me a couple of years of my life and health. And it's a very long story and unfortunately a somewhat painful one. So we're not going to waste time on that. Fair to say that your background and your qualifications there, I would say, are about as far removed from the automotive industry as as you could get. We won't dive into the politics, but it does sound like it could be a very frustrating career path. But let's get into the more interesting stuff, which is your current career. Okay, so we've kind of established here you've got no formal qualifications in engineering, but your knowledge is clearly deep on these topics. So how did you build that knowledge? I mean, this is probably interesting because a lot of people you know, making these assumptions like I have would sort of think, well, you know, my time's passed. I haven't gone to university and done a, a mechanical engineering degree, so you know, I'm not going to learn these topics. Clearly you could. How'd you go about it? Yeah, I mean, it's very possible that I, if I had an actual engineering education, if I studied engineering, it's maybe even possible and then got a job in engineering that I wouldn't like it as much as I actually do now. Because when something is your career, sometimes it just turns into what you're using, what you're doing to make money and pay the bills. And sometimes this can kill the passion. Definitely. And for me, I think that if you want to know about something, if you want to be good about something, and this is going to sound you know, corny and like something you've heard a million times, but it really is if you have passion and genuine interest in this, there's honestly nothing that can stop you from acquiring knowledge and skills in that area. I may not have formal education and I do have all respect for formal education, but I have devoured, once I got, once I like bought the car and then dove into it, started diving into it, the more I, the deeper I went, the more I wanted to know. And this was just more and more. And I started at some point, the internet wasn't enough. So I started buying actual books from, you know, that are taught in engineer at college and university started reading that you know i think that i read them faster and with more interest than if somebody had actually told me to read them because it was just me in this world and it was such a contradiction to my work and my career where there really is there is no proper relationship between income and outcome with a machine there is this beautiful reliable world of if the input is proper if the input is correct then the output will be correct and that's really beautiful if you build an engine properly it's going to run properly it's going to make power it's going to work and this for me was so liberating that it's really hard to explain coming from a world where you do uh, tons of input and the output is nothing. And then you do it again, and it happens again. And then, you you know, when I got a piston in my hand, started putting it together, hey, look, this works. It's the same as in the book. And for me, this was absolute joy. 
And then I wanted more and more and more. And it just kept snowballing, snowball. What is this? What does this do? What does this do? As you learn, then I think what helped the videos be useful is that many of these things I had to explain to myself. Uh, and I explained it to myself as someone without a formal background. I had to explain them in a way that makes sense for me. And I did learn the calculations as much as I could, the formulas, all of that. I understood it after, you know, struggling with it. But the basic stuff, it has to be intuitive. And this, I think, works with the videos. When you explain something, I when I explain something to people, I put myself in the shoes of the other person. And I was also that other person. I think it's difficult for a lot of people who, who are that deep in the industry, know this stuff inside and out, to be able to approach a topic they know so thoroughly with that beginner mindset. And that's where the disconnect comes. I mean, I know as well because I went through university and I did a few engineering papers and some of those textbooks are pretty dry and if you don't have a lecturer to actually break down these concepts, sometimes they're difficult. We do, however, live in a time where there's never been more information freely available. There's a couple of elements I just wanted to add in here as I was sort of listening to you you tell that story. And to sort of (laughs) turn this around and bring it back to me, this is something I have mentioned a couple of times on the podcast, so regular listeners will will have already heard this, but I went through university and I started doing an information uh, systems engineering paper which involved programming. And at the time, I was like, this is literally a foreign language. I do not understand this. My brain absolutely doesn't work in this way. I actually changed majors and moved away from programming. And that's a a topic for another day. But later in life, I started working on the MoTeC M1 platform. And um, they were kind enough to give me a development license, which gave me access to build where you can basically write your own firmware. And I was like, all right, this again. But at this point, I had a had a need that I wanted to fulfill, which was I wanted to write a flex fuel software package, which didn't exist at the time. And it's amazing when you actually have a reason to learn something, all of a sudden, you know, I actually managed to figure it out. I mean, hey, uh, anyone who is actually a, a, a programmer would look at my code and go, what is this guy up to? It was messy, but it got the job done. But, you know, just when you've actually got a reason to learn something, everything all of a sudden becomes, I was real passionate about it. I, there was weeks where I was like working till 11 o'clock midnight, you know, playing with code, simulating it, seeing how it worked. Oh, that didn't work. It's crashed or whatever. It wouldn't compile. You know, and I actually really enjoyed it. The other element I wanted to mention there, which you were just sort of referring to, obviously we do similar things with our videos on technical topics. And there's been a lot of times where there'll be something I know and I take for granted, be that engine building or tuning or wiring. And you don't really think it, think too much about it. The second you actually have to record a video on it and explain it thoroughly to someone, it starts you second guessing what you think you know. And then you actually have to go and research and make sure, hey, was, was this assumption I've made actually accurate all along? Okay, this is how it works. All of a sudden, like I know that topic better than I did before because if I don't know it that deeply, I'm not going to be able to teach it. So just a couple of things I, I wanted to to add in there. And I mean, obviously you're, you've sort of, you've come at it from a, a very similar perspective. Key takeaway there though, I think is for those who want to learn engineering, as you've mentioned, clearly there are options that are viable outside of tertiary education. 
All right, let's sort of come back to the formation founding of, of Driving for Answers. This sort of sounds like it kind of happened in conjunction with this uh, AW11 project, but I mean, again, given your, your career in politics, this is a, a big step out of your probably your day-to-day. So what made you decide to become a, a YouTube sensation? Well, uh, I mean, honestly, the plan was like never to become, I never thought about this turning into my full-time career or, you know, becoming a YouTube sensation. My first video that I published on YouTube, and I never deleted it, I never deleted any of my old videos. The first video I published was basically a recording of how my AW11 doesn't idle properly and, you know, it shuts off after idling and getting warm. And that's because the idle air control valve on the throttle body, it has, you know, on the 4AG, it has the stupid wax. The wax pellet, yeah. Yeah, that crap. Anyway, I, I didn't know it back at the time. So I made this recording just so I could show the guys on the forum how it doesn't work, right? And so maybe they can help me diagnose the issue. That was the first video. And I did start some people might remember this from the very early days and i still get sometimes people in the comments who say i remember this channel from when it was a blog and when i see that that's like i don't know i want i want to take the guy out to a beer or a coffee or something buy him i mean people have no idea how encouraging that is when somebody tells me that basically they've been watching for like what i don't know nine eight years they've been around they've seen that's like i don't know it feels like like a friend in there because the more the channel grows the more there is the disconnect from the community and these people who are there who are actually they are the gems when you get i have familiar faces in the the comments and i remember them and i they are what keeps me from not banning commenting under my videos because sometimes youtube it's unreal so basically the the car i picked up the car i bought it this this was an absolute insanity impulse buy probably the craziest thing i have ever done uh the car was like 300 kilometers away from my i said i was going to buy a car the car is going to save me i'm going to work on the car and that's how i'm going to survive my nine to five job that was the plan the car was supposed to save me i found it there were two aw11s in my country one i didn't like the one i bought i thought it was good i mean i had not seen it properly but then i found a random person in the ads to drive me to the city which was like 300 kilometers away i went there and i said okay i'm buying it i opened up like the oil cap to see if there's like mayonnaise on it like let's let's hope it's not a bad head gasket i went i looked underneath it it wasn't rusty and that's it and the car wasn't started for like three years and i drove it back and it drove horribly the gears couldn't shift right but i drove i was incredibly tired and the car belongs to like a beekeeper and there were like traces of like parts of you know the honeycombs and everything everywhere around the car it was it was craziness i sat into a, a car that was not functional we just put a new battery in it the oil was like i think five or six years in it and we they couldn't open the local mechanic couldn't open the sump bolt you know to drain it so we just kept it in there i drove back and i when i came home i just like fell asleep like instantly i i saw the pillow and i just fell asleep it was craziness but so honestly the most uh the most incredible part of that story is you said that the car didn't have any rust because Early 80s, 90s, Toyotas, one thing they did incredibly well, at least in our country, was rust. And I had an AW11 and it fell apart from rust around the engine, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, sounds familiar, honestly. Most of the cars, that's exactly the reason why they died. This thing was this beekeeper guy. He, he bought the car. He had like a shed, which was very dry, very nice. And he just 
put it in like it, it's not a proper shed but it's covered it's closed it's an enclosure he just put it in there and he like didn't start it for a couple of years he would drive it he didn't want to pay the registration for the car so he would just drive it like a, like a few days you know every year and i think that's what saved the car that's why it, it has you know minimal rust here and there like all of these cars but it wasn't terminal i've seen before that a few cars a few old nissans and stuff i mean they were all and the but the sellers are amazing this whole community is incredible it'll buff out it's <laughs> it'll buff out is real <laughs> when i was there i mean yeah yeah anyways nothing wrong with a little bit of optimism yeah so Again, we'll, we'll dive into this car build in a bit more detail. I'm still interested, sort of, at, at what point did you go from posting a video on YouTube to try and help explain on a forum why your car won't idle to sort of thinking, hey, you know, there might be something here and uh, there's a problem that I want to solve? So basically, the initial, the channel is, the channel transformed at one point. Initially, uh, I started with like a blog where I wanted to document my journey with this car. It was, I really don't have any friends or, you know, acquaintances or even family who's into cars to the extent that I am. You have the odd person that like knows, you know, how many horsepower a particular car has and what is fast and what is not. But that's it. That's where it ends. Uh, they don't know. They don't go, you know, into the crazy realm. So anyways, and this, I made a blog so I could share basically this little journey. And then I started documenting it with videos and I it somehow quickly I moved away from the blog I kept writing from time to time but somehow the videos were to me for some reason I really don't know but a more a more usable format and uh, it conveys more it conveys sound it conveys you know image it conveys what's happening you can tell a story you can so in the beginning I was just documenting like I was restoring a few parts you can still find these absolutely ridiculous ancient videos shot with like a ridiculous camera it's like me in front of a wire brush for like two minutes it's 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 unwatchable but i thought you know this is this is fun you know i can record this look i made this part look so much nicer so and then i realized you know okay this looks horrendous maybe i should talk in these videos and like give some sort of background like explain what's actually happening instead of just shooting like you know pictures with a bit of text you know underneath so then i did that and then sort of the community started you know appearing random people would write something hey i have the same car and i was like when i saw the first comment i was like oh my god somebody's actually watching this and I, and that was there was a moment when i saw the first comment and I remember a guy from the u.s and he was one of the first people who subscribed and commented. And the moment I saw the comment, I was like, I'm going to delete all of this <laughs> because I really thought nobody was watching the crap. I would saw like 10 views on a video and I'm thinking, you know, okay, 10, whatever, you know, it's like bots or something. I just didn't care. But when you see the comments and then it becomes real. And then I said, you know, okay, I'm going to keep doing it. And then slowly you start noticing what's wrong about the videos, you know, and then you try to fix this and that. And the more feedback it's, it's it's a vicious circle, but not a vicious circle in a positive way, a vicious circle. It's like the more feedback you get, the more you want to provide, the more you want to sort of give back. And then you get more feedback on that. And then you want to give even better content. And it just keeps rolling. I think I'll just interrupt you there for a second. And I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, first of all, everyone has to start from somewhere. Anyone on YouTube doesn't sort of instantly jump into YouTube and, and have a, a perfectly polished presentation and, and everything's just perfect. That's ridiculous. But one of the well, the very first course that HPA recorded and still uh, I'd say probably our most popular is our EFI Tuning Fundamentals course. 
And back when Ben and I had founded High Performance Academy, it was kind of a, a test the waters and see see if you know there was a demand for what we were producing. So at the time, I was still running my tuning business as well. So this was very much a sort of on the side. And um, you know, a lot of people probably haven't heard this story, but at the time, Ben was actually living up in Auckland, which is uh, I don't know about eight hundred kilometres from where I was. And uh, I'd fly up or he'd fly down. So the very first course was recorded in the the living room of his flat. We had to stop while his neighbour was mowing the lawns and literally we were shooting with some crappy camera through a ladder and the reason we were shooting through a ladder is so that we could race tape an iPad to one of the rungs of the ladder and that was our teleprompter. Oh my God. And the lighting kept changing because, you know, we didn't have a, a blacked out room. You know, we've got the curtains are drawn. So as the light changes, the lighting in the room changes. It was, it was a hot mess. It was a train wreck. But what it did was it showed that, you know, we've got proof of concept, this thing works. So then when we decided to go full time, we re-recorded the entire course because now we actually had something of a, of a studio. It was very rudimentary, but it was better. And that brought our level of quality up again, both audio and and the video. And then we grew, the team got bigger, we had dedicated uh, animation graphics specialist on team, we've got a crew of video editors, and then we recorded it. So I think we're on either our third or our fourth iteration of that course now, each time just polishing the edges and making it you know, just that much nicer. Now it's got nice engaging B-roll and you know, animations of the topics, you know, but we couldn't have done that at the start. So you have to start somewhere. And I think one of the things that holds a lot of people back, and this isn't just on YouTube, is striving for perfection as opposed to settling for good enough. Get something out there as a proof of concept and then you know you can polish it later. Anyway, sorry, I, I, I digress. Let's get back to your story. At what point did you start sort of seeing that, hey, there might actually be a career path here on YouTube to sort of make a, a full-time career in? The breaking point was when I was sort of finished with the build and I sort of ran out of things that I thought were, you know, good ideas to shoot about the AW11. So basically up to that point, the channel was just me and AW11 and my build. At that point, it was the bike carb conversion. What what sort of subscriber numbers did we have at that point, just to get an idea? That was around 50,000 50, subscribers. Okay. Okay. So yeah. that's sort of where, and I realized that I could keep shooting videos but I really never wanted to go into this uh, sphere of, let's say, vlogging content, you know, or now I'm going here, now I'm doing this, now I'm at this car show. Believe it or not, I was I'm in my entire life, I've been at one car show. So, I mean, all of it was, I, I didn't want to go into there, in, into shooting this personal content because I never thought, you know, the channel was about me or about what I do or how I do it. That's just my personal opinion. I really don't enjoy that particular content that much because if I want to see what somebody's doing, I try to meet in person, you know, have a chat, let's do something together, let's experience it. So I didn't want to shoot that. And I I probably not really good at shooting that content either because I I sort of don't feel it's it's it has any value. Maybe I'm I don't know. This is a lot of personal subjective opinion. But there was this key point where I said, you know, maybe I don't have to talk just about AW11 and what I do in the garage. Maybe I can talk about other engines. It sounds like very basic and something that I should have realized ages ago. But for me, this was like, hey, I have the right to talk about whatever I want to talk about. And that moment when that clicked in my head, 
I realized that there's a million of these topics that I read about and that I explored and that I enjoyed reading about in the evening or at other points. Uh, sometimes I even wrote like tiny, I, for some of my videos, I had pretty much ready-made scripts because sometimes when I would read about something and try to understand it and research it online and read about it in a book, then I would write like little notes like basically in Word on my PC, I would write, you know, ah, this is how it works because sometimes I have to write it down an explanation with my own words so that I don't forget what it is, you know, how it works because I have to have this, something that makes sense to me. And most of these stuff I used in the videos because these are really, I always try to have an intuitive explanation and I try to imagine, like I'm explaining to a person that knows zero about engines. They just want to understand this and they came from, you know, wherever and let's assume they have zero background and I'm, I'm going to try and explain this to these people because this is what i was at some point not too long ago maybe just a few years ago and then i started the iconic engine series my first video that was not about the mr2 uh, was me like i think it was on a couch or, or in my kitchen or somewhere audio video was still you know two out of ten but i shot a video the first iconic engines video was about the 4age engine i i had to spend uh, zero time researching because far too much time on that engine. And I was really surprised by, okay, it took me one day to shoot this video and hook. It's, you know, it's nice content. I may, maybe some, this is useful to somebody. My goal was to create a video because I remember when I was researching the 4AG, when I first got the car, I spent months, you know, typing this, what is this? And I decided, you know what? I'm going to make a video when somebody who's going to start researching this engine, he buys the engine. Let's let them watch this one video of what, what 24 minutes and let them have like 80 or 90% or as much as humanly possible in one video. That was the goal. And I made a video. I had no idea what was going to happen. I uploaded it and there was this like swarm of comments and people, oh, this is so useful. This is, I was like, I can't believe this is useful. And, you know, people were saying, oh, this, maybe you should do other engines, you know? And then I started doing other engines. And then from the engines, I realized, okay, I don't have to talk just about engines. Maybe I can talk about general mechanical concepts because that's really fun. And then basically, I just sort of needed to give myself permission to talk about stuff that I really like and enjoy. So it's getting that, that confidence to break out of what you were sort of known for at the time and what you were confident in and starting to have that confidence to move into these other topics. Yeah. I mean, you could say it's confidence, but it's, I really, it wasn't, it's not just confidence. I, I thought that I don't have the right to talk about these topics, mostly because I thought that, you know what, I'm not some sort of professor. You know, I'm just a random guy. I can't talk about this stuff I don't have because I'm I was really very traditional up to that point in my brain you know I didn't watch a lot of YouTube I didn't I really didn't understand how let's quote unquote say this new world works and then I realized hey basically everybody in YouTube is just some random guy I mean who cares I don't have to have this, any sort of certificate to talk about this stuff and I really like this stuff <laughs> unfortunately I find that that is both a blessing and a curse because yes you're absolutely right and you're doing it with technically correct information that is actually teaching people how things work. Unfortunately, I think with YouTube now, anyone with uh, an iPhone and you know sort of the time to edit a video is is able to put content out, and that unfortunately gives us a lot of questionable content where technically they are incorrect, but people will believe it as gospel because it's on YouTube. So that that's the that is a problem. 
definitely, definitely. I mean, uh, when I was back on the forums, and I remember there was a guy who was on the AWM forums, and I started doing videos a bit. And I remember he told me, and this was like a really tough thing for me to swallow. But I said, you know, I I had to digest his thing that he told me at the forums. But I was like, you know, screw you. You're not going to stop me. Because who are you? Because I remember he told me what you're doing on YouTube. He told me, he says, this is what I think is the pinnacle of human stupidity and what will lead the human race to ruin. And then he referenced the movie Idiocracy. And then he told me, (laughs) he told me, you know what, who gives, like, how can you talk about something that you don't you, that you don't know but i said you know what i did it i experimented with it i broke a few of these parts you know and then i did it right and then i made a video and it's useful and when i make something wrong and i did i did have some mistakes in the old videos i would delete a video and publish it again you know correctly but you know he could never he could never he was totally against youtube and social media concept and everything but you're definitely right there is a lot of but that's unavoidable even if you Look at books. I mean, if you look at books, I have bought engineering, quote unquote, engineering books, and I'm not an engineer, but I'm confident some of these books are junk. I mean, they're horrible. I mean, the way they explain things, it's absolutely horrible. Some of them are published like 2015, 2014, and they are using antiquated concepts, you know, technology that's been abandoned for like 10 years, and they are saying it, you know, oh, this is how it works. Oh, no, it's not. But of course, social media, you have this massive flood of information. But I think ultimately it is fair because the junk doesn't last. It can't. It just, it, it's there. It can create a sensation. It can create a little firecracker, a little boom. But eventually, you know, enough people will tell you people, don't listen to this guy. He's insane, whatever. And it just sort of starts sinking and it gets forgotten and dies. Yeah, I 100% agree. Sort of um, through almost crowdsourcing, you're starting to see those who who are producing good content rise to the top, and as you say, the, the rest get pushed down. A couple of elements there. First of all, I think your point about I can't teach this stuff because I, I'm not a professor or I don't have a piece of paper that says I'm an expert in this field. I mean, the reality I, I find here is, and this is what separates those who do what you do and to a point what we do, is there's a lot of people out there who are what I'd say experts in a given field and they'd probably run rings around me in engine building or or whatever but whether they can actually break down some of these concepts and explain them in a simple to understand way to others often that's the bit and I find that's the skill set that's very very important for what we're doing you you and I is being able to break down these concepts even if you know technically maybe you're you're not the, the expert at the pinnacle of that field the other element which you kind of alluded to there, and, and I'm just interested because obviously we have exactly the same, uh, I'm interested in how you deal with this, is the, the trolls, those who are, are quite happy to jump into the comment section. You know, I've been doing this now for probably 12 plus 15 years, maybe I don't even longer than that because we, we had trolls with my old business as well. And any time you're kind of breaking a world record or putting yourself out there with this information, th- there's those who are, are pretty quick to try and sort of bring you back to earth. I had to grow a pretty thick skin fairly early on. But yeah, how do you deal with that? It's a tough question. It's a tough topic. It's I had this phase where it was 
really hard and really painful. And because I really make the videos, I make them as honestly and as genuinely and as possible. And my I don't want to put out something that I don't think is good, even if it's something that, you know, oh, this is this might work, it might get views. But if I think it's useless and it doesn't have any value, I, I don't want to publish it. And for me, still, something that takes up space on a server, server somewhere, I think it has to have some value. It is consuming some sort of resource at the end of the day. So it has to have value. And when you try, and I really try hard, and I do everything myself, the whole channel is a, is a one-man show, the recording, the scripting, the researching, the editing, the, the little graphical animations, everything. It's None of it is really professional, but I do everything myself for the sake of quality control. And basically, that's what I think why I do it, but maybe I don't, who knows. But th that's what I try. And then somebody comes there and tells you, you know, like, and sometimes these people are really creative with the insults. And, you know, there was a phase, I had a phase where I responded to all of them. And I tried to like hurt them back like the the meanest things i could come up with i would do there, there was there was like for a few weeks i remember that i think let's say three four years ago i think and there was three weeks when i said you know what and now i'm gonna lash out at you because you keep hurting me i'm gonna hurt you now and some of sometimes and then after that i started banning people who were like really hateful and really nasty i would just ban them from never commenting i honestly think there is this might sound weird but there is place for censorship on social media and on any media where somebody really oversteps the line. And it's not just curse words. It, it's where something is like genuinely hateful and you see it at somebody's. Oh, great. I, I mean, he's trying to either hurt the creator or somebody else. You, you, you can see responses to comments. Or people, I mean, this is something for me, like a massive phenomenon. I can't figure it out because I'm also interested in another version of, I don't know, me. I'm really interested in psychology and philosophy. I really care about these things and human emotion, all that. It's, it's an interesting topic. And I'm trying to understand these people. I'm trying to understand the mot motivation behind this. For example, let's say I find a video on YouTube and I open it and I don't like it. Honestly, I'm not pretending to be a saint here, but I'm just going to click away. 100%. That's what I've never understood is someone who will watch a 15-minute video to comment about how much they hate it. And it's like, well, if you don't like it, there's no one actually with a gun to your head forcing you to watch these videos. I think the other thing is the internet and social media in general is given this level of you can be anonymous and it's really easy to hide behind a laptop keyboard and say things that you would absolutely never consider saying to, to someone's face. It is a challenge. I mean, I love a good internet battle from time to time. I mean, I also have to look at the practicality of the time I'm going to waste battling with someone in the comments section and the old story, you know, uh, battling with someone on the internet, you're fighting with an idiot who's going to bring you down to their level and then beat you with experience. And that, unfortunately, is often the reality of the situation. You summed it up really well because that's how I overcame it. At some point, I realized, you know, and you, the number of comments keeps increasing and you just can't keep up. And I found solace in the fact that, okay, some people come here to lash out to maybe, maybe they've had a bad day and maybe this is how, what makes them feel better, you know, and there's no, it's not necessary for me to respond. I don't have to respond. And I just, you know, oh, it's okay. I stopped. And I, now I have, after like years, I have the ability to like just scroll past. Okay. Next guy. Okay. He didn't like it. Maybe I should fix it, you know, and basically it became like a normal thing, but it took, it took time and it took effort. Yeah. I mean, I think also there are some constructive feedback comments that maybe aren't worded the best and can look insulting. Sometimes you know, it's definitely you want to take 
some constructive feedback on board and see how you can apply that in making your your you know new videos better. I guess one of the questions that it seems like you're trying to answer with driving for answers is this level of misinformation, misunderstanding that that's rife in the performance automotive industry. I'm, I'm interested. Why do you think that is the situation we face in this industry? I don't know if it's as bad in other industries. I think a part of it. I mean, just an opinion, but I think a part of it is the complexity of the industry itself, and there's a massive discrepancy because. Uh, between what people want to achieve with, let's say, a build and what they need to actually achieve it. It's massive. You have to have a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience, a lot of things to have to actually create something that is good and desirable and that matches whatever your dreams are. Because when you think about it, a car and an engine are incredibly complex. I mean, any sort of machine, it, it doesn't have to be a car, just take an electric scooter. Even that requires a lot of complexity. And then people enter this world where they want this to achieve this, you know, uh, they have this thing, they're imagining a particular build, a particular car with a particular power output performance, whatever. And they start running into these obstacles after obstacles after obstacles, you know, this, you need this, this costs that much, this works like this. Oh, that's not a good idea. Oh, you need air to air. No, you need water to air. You need this, you need that. And people start, this is human nature, I think, to try to find an easy way out, you know. And then this is where these easy explanations come, you know, these fix it all, you know, oh, it's, you can just put a bigger turbo on it, you know, or whatever, you know, and these things are easy to remember. Easy, It's like the thing with horsepower and torque. And this has done, this singular <laughs> sentence, I think has done more damage than any other ever. I think it was Jeremy Clarkson. I love Jeremy Clarkson, but that sentence, horsepower is how fast you hit the wall and torque is how far you wall with you. I swear to God, if I had a dollar for every one of these comments, I think I would have a few thousand bucks. And people just come to the video and I think they just come, they open, they say video horsepower versus torque. They just comment that, uh, that same thing and they go out and they leave the video because this is easy to memorize. It's fun and it saves you the trouble of having to think and understand and, you know, oh, it's this easy little, tiny little religion, you know, uh, that you can just outsource your brain to that sentence. You don't have to think about it anymore. It fixes it. This is what you can remember. It's the wall. It has to do with the wall. And that's it. And I think stuff like this, unfortunately, it's like bacteria. It grows very quickly. It reproduces incredibly quickly because most people i think in human nature people hate thinking i mean we some people like thinking but many people hate thinking because it's painful having to you know think and decide and process this in your mind so it's easier to just remember this quick thing you know and there's a million sentences like this you know hit the wall push thing and i think they just spread they're a virus and yeah absolutely agree a little bit out of, out of sort of order here i was gonna uh, jump into just talking about some of the topics that you've covered in some of your more popular videos that are sort of up around that 5 million view mark and horsepower versus torque, seeing as you've mentioned that, that's one of them. Don't worry, we're coming back to the AW11, I haven't forgotten about it. But uh, th- this is something that I think is is such a misunderstood topic. Maybe Jeremy Clarkson does have something to answer for here, but I think back to my days running a tuning workshop and quite often, once a month or more, you'd have a customer come in and they'd say either one or two things. Either I don't really care about the horsepower number, I just want you to tune it for torque, or obviously the polar opposite, you know, I want horsepower, not torque. And you're sort of like, well, 
you can't have one without the other. These are not mutually exclusive elements. They are inextricably joined with a very, very simple formula, which is if we're looking at uh, imperial units and you look at a dynograph, the torque and the horsepower graphs will cross at 5,252 RPM, and that's not by accident. Let's jump into this. So can you give us a a simple explanation of the torque and horsepower relationship? I did that in a recent video. So I'm trying to beat fire with fire. And I tried to find a sentence that can hopefully do some damage to the wall thing. And I said that torque is the force behind a single punch. RPM is the number of punches you can deliver in a minute. Horsepower is the resulting damage. And I'm trying to here make it impossible to disconnect. This is obviously not necessarily scientifically correct. It's definitely not. But I'm trying to make it unseparable because without the force of a single punch, you can't do any damage. And I'm trying to make this intuitive. We all have intuition related to punches. It's easy to remember. And this is what I tried to put in the video. So people stop separating the two. But still on that video, I got like a million comments again. People saying horsepower is how fast you hit the wall and <laughs> torque is, and this is like it's a, if it, if it wasn't tragic, it would be You're fighting a losing battle here. Yeah, I mean it's th- that thing is incredible. I mean I can do like a search on through the comments, and it's like you could scroll for like literally days. The same comment, like million. Sometimes I, I think it's you know like bots, an army of bots that is created to just repeat that comment, but it's not. It's unfortunately it's actual people. So that's what I try to do to just make it horsepower is a calculation, torque is this a measure of a force of. I mean, if you were to put your hand into the engine, torque is how brutally and quickly your hand will be mutilated. And without that, horsepower doesn't exist. You know, horsepower is a calculation and. But I think, I mean, what you mentioned, that is so true, so relatable. And you meet these people and we will probably keep meeting them forever. I want this. I don't want that. Because they have this subjective relationship. They sat in a car, maybe a friend's car. They had this amazing, you know, acceleration. Somebody floored it. And he said, wow, I want a car like this. And then then their friend said, man, it's a torque. And then he came to your shop. I want a torque. And this is the same bacteria, you know, that is, it's easy to remember this. It's easy to make an emotional connection and it replicates itself and it spreads. And some people who want to employ critical thinking and be objective, they will easily overcome this. They will ask more questions. They will say, you know what, this doesn't make sense. I'm going to research it more. And then they will quickly just get over it and have the actual insight into what is horsepower and torque. But you have to have this willingness to have actual knowledge and have objectivity. Otherwise, you're just going to fall into the traps. Yeah, I'll, I'll expand on that a little bit. So the, the equation kind of alluded to there, which is very, very simple. If we're talking imperial terms, horsepower is equal to uh, the torque multiplied by the RPM at which that torque is being produced and then divided by a constant, which is that 5,252, which is why when we're at 5,252 RPM, you've got the RPM on the top line, you've got the constant of 5,252 on the bottom line, they cancel out. So that's why horsepower equals torque at at that RPM. But the element of that equation that's important to take away is that RPM becomes a really important multiplier for our torque, which is why you see racing engines, and let's go straight to the top of the pinnacle, which is Formula One, you know, these engines back in the naturally aspirated days, because I like those better. So the V8s, the V10s, the V12s, I mean, depending on the era you're talking, because the RPM limits changed, but you know, 18, 20,000, 22,000 RPM, that is a massive multiplier to that torque number. 
And that is why they're actually not making very much talk. It's a, a relatively modest amount of talk, but they've got such a high RPM where they're making that talk. And that's why these naturally aspirated 2.4 litre engines are making 800 horsepower, whatever it may have been. The element that's important to understand, I think, when we're thinking about this is we can't just sit behind the laptop keyboard and say, all right, well, you know, my, my stock 4AGE, or actually what I want to do is make uh, 800 horsepower from that, so we're just going to rev it to 20,000 RPM. Clearly, that doesn't work. Every element of the engine is then optimised for high volumetric efficiency in that RPM range, which really is airflow. The more airflow we can make, the more torque we can make, which is why if you look at a volumetric efficiency table, the shape of that actually looks very much like the torque curve on a dyno. So simple terms, I say torque essentially is airflow. So if we want to move the torque curve up towards the top end of the RPM range, that's not a tuning element. If we've optimised everything, it is what it is. That's a mechanical design element. As a tuner, our job is just to give the engine what it wants. So in order to move that torque curve dramatically, we actually have to make mechanical changes to the engine. Maybe that's just advancing or retarding the cams. You know, that will help. That will move the torque curve. But you know, at the top end, you're sort of going to need a completely different cam profile, probably modifications to the head porting and everything else. But I'm sort of I digress a little bit there. I just that is probably one of the most misunderstood topics that I see in the world of engine tuning. And realistically, it is when you get down to nitty gritty, quite a simple concept. Now, we're ducking and diving around a little bit, but I do want to come back to this AW11 build. We've talked about it briefly, but I want to get a bit deeper into this. Now, I've watched a bit of this, and I, I kind of know a little bit about what's gone on. One of the interesting elements that I wanted to ask you about is your engine choice, which is a little, as I would say, unconventional with a 4E FTE. Uh, FE, sorry, not T. You've too much charged it. We'll call it a TE now. But uh, it sounds like when you purchased that AW11, it had the factory fitted for AGE, which is a very well known performance engine. So I'm mean, just a, there's a variety of combinations seven AGEs, you know, 20 valve head swaps, all of the other options. Why the 4E FE? Okay, so there's a couple of reasons. First of all, we have to put it into context. And the context is that the 20 valve stuff you guys have. For me, I first have to get it into the country, and to get it into the country, I have to pay my customs and shipping and everything. And then when it comes in, then at the customs, they say, oh, why do you need this? And I say, oh, it's for an engine. I mean, Europe is becoming, even though Boston is not the EU, Europe is becoming ever more prohibitive to this sort of, you know, getting in engine parts. When you get in a head, sometimes if you're unlucky, they're going to ask you, oh, what are you going to do with this head? And you say, I want to replace it. And then they ask you for a confirmation that you have the actual engine that the head comes from. You have to bring, a, like demonstrate somehow that you have that same engine. I mean, you can get around it. So basically it was cost. It was the difficulty of getting this. And then I bought a 4AFE just to use the block. Okay. So that was the initial thing. I, and I would say, you know, I'm going to build a 4AGE. I'm just going to turbocharge it. I know this, this engine pretty much inside out. So I'm going to stick with this. But then when I bought the 4AFE, and this is a second generation 4AFE, it's not the, the very first generation one. It has a different like all silver valve cover. The first generation, it's it's like in terms of performance, it's completely useless. I mean, no, I think no matter how much money you pour into it, it's not going to do anything. So I saw the second generation. I looked at the ports. I made out a video about this explaining sort of my reasoning. And context one is cost and availability. 4AGEs are now incredibly rare, really hard to find. And I had one, the bicarb was clean. I didn't want to touch it. I, I said, you know, I'm just going to take it out as is to get rid of the transmission. 
And I looked at the 4AFE, the second generation came from the UK that I got, uh, you know, from a junkyard. Somebody bought basically a whole car, took it apart. I just bought the engine. And I looked at the intake ports and I really liked them. And I liked them uh, because for me, they are, it's very obvious that they are more modern than the stuff on the 4AG, especially the early generations. I'm excluding here the 20 valves, but the early generation 16 valves, the, red, the uh, red tops, the big ports, you can see this is sort of, the engine performance thinking from the 80s you have gigantic ports which have like massive potential amount of airflow this is what you just talked about you have massive potential amount of airflow which is achieved at what six and a half six point eight thousand rpm but below you have when you don't have this at all rpm you do not have the potential for this and you have obviously pathetic torque and these engines 4AGs really suck in terms of torque below like four and a half. And this is why you have the TVIS system installed, which is sort of like a, this little band-aid that closes off half the port. So it tries to achieve some sort of air velocity because you really don't have air velocity because your port is this big. It's like a giant. And then I looked at the 4AFE and you see this much more modern thinking where you have a smaller port. This engine is not designed to rev crazy high, but I can fix that. I can change the bottom end. I can put in different rods. I can put a 4AGE crank, but I have this very nice little intake port, which is treatable. I'm going to port and polish it like absolutely minimally, just remove the casting flash. And you have this, and this thing is going to help with responsiveness. It's going to build torque early on. I'm building the car for the street for something that is, I'm not going to race anywhere with it. It's for me to have fun with on a, a good road. And I said, you know what, this makes sense. The cams, what's not really good with the cams, of course, is that the cams are geared together. So you don't have the sort of adjustment options in terms of cam timing. It's the same thing, I think, on the UZFE. I think it has the same thing. Exactly. The V8, yeah. It has the same thing. So, but I said, you know what, for turbocharging, I disagree with this, but to an extent for turbocharged engine, you know, this sort of cam timing stuff is not so important. And I'm going to use, you know, the turbo to sort of get around that a bit. So I said, okay, I'm going to live with this. The, I can't adjust the cams. What I did get, what's really nice with the engine is that the, the intake and the exhaust cams, they have like more lift than the stuff that came in Europe because UK didn't have some sort of restrictions at that time. And the exhaust manifold is completely different. The exhaust manifold in European 4EFE engines is like this cast, ugly giant thing. Mandrel bent steel is what I got on the UK engine. And the I have eight and a half millimeters of lift on the intake, eight millimeters of lift on the exhaust. And I was, you know what? This is this is totally fine. We measured duration, I forgot, but it was decent-ish. You know, I was fascinated by the by the lift numbers. And I said, you know what, this can be built into something that has performance. And then I realized that if I built this engine and if I demonstrate that it has some sort of potential for performance, then I'm bringing value again because these engines are really plentiful. They're re readily available. They're cheap, and people can buy them instead of you know spending savings, entire savings on a 4AGE, which again needs to be rebuilt. And some of these 4AFEs are actually in good conditions. You have them in Toyota Carinas in the in Europe and everywhere else. And I thought people that want something maybe Japanese and these 
engines fit in a bunch of Toyotas. Maybe they can find solace in this engine. And I did hear people starting to build, you know, a few persons basically saying that, yo, this is not bad. I have a 4 AFE in, in the back of my garage. I thought it was useless, <laughs> you know. So you think maybe this is the Toyota version of the uh, the 5.3 sort of LS cast iron block truck engine that everyone's buying for 400 bucks from a wrecking yard, bolting on some eBay turbos and making a thousand at the wheels? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I don't think it has, you know, that sort of potential. And I think in race trim, I don't think it can touch the 4AGE because we did have to do some trickery. For example, the valve springs, the engine, the 4AFE revs in stock form to, I think, 6.3, 6 6.2. 6 so very, very low redline. They basically designed it for economy. There is no dramatic upper RPM like in the 4AGE. You don't have the sporty nature. And that's why the valve springs are, if you take them out from the engine, it takes very little effort to, to squeeze them with, with your finger. They're ridiculous. But we did find a replacement. We took dimensions, the exact dimensions, and we went to a machine shop that fortunately had like a giant, like a storage house of valve springs with numbers on them. And we like compared one by one until we found the same one. And it was an Opel Insignia 08 model, two liter diesel, something that has the exact dimensions but a lot stiffer springs. So we went with those. On that note, do you sort of think you're making your life more difficult dealing with an engine that doesn't have the level of aftermarket support? You know, obviously, 4AGE, you can buy off-the-shelf valve spring kits, off-the-shelf bigger valves. There's a variety of cam profiles, etc. 100%. This is definitely, I mean, I've spent some, but mostly it, it was time. It wasn't money. It was it usually required time and creativity to fix these issues because definitely it does require, it is a bit of a pain, but the bottom end, you can rely on 4AG aftermarket. Basically, my whole bottom end is, is a 4AGZE. I mean, I went with forged aftermarket, inexpensive rods, and a 4AGE brand new crankshaft from Toyota, which you can still buy, which is really acceptable. Like I think $700 for a brand new crank, and these cranks are good. I got ARP everything, and it gives you a pretty solid bottom end. I went with the low compression 4AGZ pistons. I don't think those are available anymore. Again, original from Toyota. They're called, they're like semi-forged. They're a really, really cost-effective and strong option as well. You know, I think a lot of people jump to you know an, an aftermarket forging, which yeah, I didn't didn't realize they've been discontinued. But aftermarket forged pistons probably around double the price. And you know, we were talking before we started recording this. I had uh, a 4AGZD bottom end in my KE7E drag car. And that was all stock Toyota components internally, crankshaft, conrods, and the supercharged low compression pistons. And we were making 500 wheel horsepower at the time. That was the last time I dynoed that car. And we actually never had a failure. Yeah, it goes to show you just how good. I mean, you can see it honestly on these 80s and 90s Toyota's parts, brand new when you get them, when, what's still available from the dealerships. You can honestly see the quality in these parts. It's it's even somebody who isn't educated or who has zero experience in it, you can see the quality. Sometimes you buy aftermarket forged pistons, and I guarantee that from some places they're gonna be worse than the OEM stuff. Because back at the time, I back in these you know decades, Toyota had this mission and it, it was this obsession, you know, of building quality of you know over engineering leaving this giant thick margin for error and this is why the 2jz and all of these engines are 
what they are because they left these giant margins for error. You know, I feel like the engineers sat in there and said, you know, maybe somebody's going to run this engine with not enough oil. We should make it survive that. I mean, nobody does that anymore, not even Toyota. No, the, the safety factor in parts design is uh, I feel like a lot of engine manufacturers are running a very, very thin line with those margins, whereas what was a, a an AW11 supercharged engine rated at you know, maybe 160, maybe 180 horsepower, I can't even remember. You know, so for me to be able to take that to 500 at the wheels on stock engine components... Uh, you know, there's numerous people took the the older 2JZ up to a thousand wheel horsepower with all stock internals as well. I mean, I couldn't necessarily recommend it, but yeah, you know, the, the fact that you could do that, there's not a lot of engines these days you'll get that level of factory power multiplication without, you know, externally venting the block. Now, this is what a lot of people also don't understand. You ha- I get often comments, people saying, oh, you see the new Yaris GR, oh, they're pushing 400, or this engine, new, this engine from BMW, they're pushing this much, that much. But people don't understand how the difference in tuning that we have today, and they also don't understand the, the very last margin of how far these engines are now pushed. They are basically like an athlete on steroids, you know, who, whose veins are like popping on the neck. They're ready to explode at any moment. They're waiting for, you know, and you had it uh, 10 years ago, 15, 20 years ago, you do, you did not have the kind of knock monitoring or, or the ECUs or, and people, people were pushing this stuff. I mean, I, it's a stupid reference, but you know, fast and furious, the supers from that time, they looked like that. And people were pushing that kind of horsepower on, on, you know, ECUs that don't compare in any way to what we have today. And these engines ran. And I mean, they made power and they, so just goes to show you how much the hardware is responsible for for that. Definitely. Talking about the the ECU side of things, uh, it looks like from memory you went with the AM Infinity on the the MR2 build. What was the reason for going down, down that route? Honestly, mostly due to my loyalty, let's say, I'll be very open about this to AEM. Back when I was at this absolutely tiny channel, I think, I not think, I know it was 16,000 subscribers. I randomly tried sending sending emails and I sent an email to AEM and I said, can you send me one of your wideband <laughs> sensors, you know, and the gauge uh, and I'll make a video about it. I honestly didn't think anybody would respond. And I sent a bunch of emails out to try and save some money because when you start building a car, especially in my part of the world, you quickly run out of money because everything, everything, imagine, you have to imagine this, that everything you buy, there is no store we go into that has everything. Okay, we order everything from abroad. Everything goes through customs and everything that you you see the price you see online, always imagine a double because I pay shipping and I pay customs. And it's always double the price and you you go in with your money and this is an expensive hobby, let's be honest. And very quickly, you just, you know, you just run out of money. And then I started sending these emails out to try and save, you know, some money. And AEM was the only company that responded and I was totally amazed by response and I had a wideband gauge. They shipped it via DHL. They paid like for the most quickest expensive shipping you can imagine. It was there across the damn Atlantic Ocean, like 48 hours, you know, in Bosnia. I was looking at it and that's a moment that I will I will never forget. And in the future, you know, they said, oh, we like your videos. And honestly, they were not that good. And they said, we like your videos. It's nice content. This is usable. We can send this, you know, to people who want to see how to install the product. So if you want something in the future, we can, we will try, you know, to meet you, make your demands. And honestly, 
I mean, and when the products arrived, I saw, you know, it was a good product and I, I was like, okay, I can install this in the video. I'm proud to install this because it's actually good. And I personally believe that this works and it's good. So I was happy there. And in the future, whatever they sent, everything was good. And I think honestly, these reputable brands nowadays, you know, AEM, Haltech, Motec, whoever you want, you know, this is all of this is good stuff. And people, this is my personal opinion. People compare this versus that. All of this nowadays is honestly so good that whatever you buy, you're not going to go wrong. I mean, I'm using the AMECU, the Infinity one, and this is, you could say it's an old product. It's six, I think, five or six years old, and I'm not using half the features. I mean, that thing has like, I don't know, boost by gear, it can control wheel speed, track. you can even do traction control with it if you're creative. You know, so many features, and all of these ECUs, when you, when you put them side by side, they all have it. So, and I realized that, at the end of the day, they all work on the same principle. And I said, you know what? I'm going to use AEM stuff because I can use it to demonstrate how it works. It's user-friendly. It's easy to install. It's something that the average car guy can use. And even if they get something different, it's still going to be relatable. Yeah, I think you did right there on on the, the fact that we're actually spoiled for choice now with the selection of modern ECUs. And I really I don't think, with probably a couple of exceptions, there's, there's not very many bad options particularly the mainstream popular ones like you mentioned. I'll chuck in there probably Cyvex, maybe uh, Link. I'm, I'm undoubtedly forgetting a few. Mtron would be another one. I mean, they all are going to run your engine and do an exceptionally good job of running the engine. It's, it's only when I think you start getting involved in, you know, sort of, higher levels of motorsport where you start wanting some of the more intricate functionality such as maybe paddle shift or gear shift control, traction control, launch control. All of these ECUs that we just listed probably have those features but I've said this before and I'll say it again, You know, there's traction control and, and then there's traction control. Uh, they're not all created equal. One will stop the wheels from spinning but you're going to be slow. Another one will limit your wheel spin and control it and you're actually going to be faster around a racetrack. But you know that doesn't actually matter for everyone. In terms of learning how to actually use the AM Infinity and tune your MR2, how did you build up that skill set? Because again, I mean, this is where we came from and, and sort of started. There was precious little information out there about tuning before we started making our courses. And I know that when I started my career 20 plus years ago, that was a challenge. I, I was forced to learn by trial and error. When it comes to tuning, I mean, the beauty of ECUs and, and software is that ultimately they reflect reality of how an engine works, especially now with V tuning, what we have, you know, it's not pulse width anymore. We have, again, the, the luxury that didn't exist, what, 10 years ago, 15, I don't know how much. But once you understand the fundamentals of the engine, you understand the fundamentals of how the tuning software works. When it comes to actually learning the you know ins and outs most of this stuff there's like massive online resources i mean even the one the the instruction manual that comes with the e with the in aem if you actually read it it's it's really useful <laughs> and it i mean hard to believe right yeah <laughs> i mean just read the manual no see it, it sounds silly but when you read it okay most of that stuff okay this is that and to be honest uh once I plugged everything in, I mean, the wiring is the big part of, of it to do it. And for me, that was the first like full wiring job that I tackled from scratch by myself. I was involved in a few other projects, but usually my part was a small little part of the project, a task, maybe, you know, do this, do that. We together, we made some decisions, but this was something that I did 
like completely by myself uh, in terms of wiring from start to finish. And I decided that, you know, that has to be done in an organized manner as well as I could. And I was amazed by, by how unorganized it came out at the end, despite my willingness. And this really amazed me as a skill, how much experience you need there and how much it needs to be approached. You know, I tried, I, I was certain I, would, I was doing it right and it works, everything works, but it's it didn't turn out as pretty as I hoped and as tidy as I hoped and as uh, serviceable as I hoped. What I've seen is that the two areas that really capable enthusiasts to shy away from doing on their own projects, one is the engine building and the other is the wiring. Now I kind of get the engine building side of things because on face value it's there's a bit that goes into it and obviously there's some machining work that's required. The wiring I think is one of those things where it's actually, I want to say it's easier than most people think, but I think the, the part that puts people off is when you're dealing with you know, electricity you, you can't see the voltage, you can't see the current, you can't see the resistance. These are, are terms that are a little bit obscure and you know it, it's difficult for people to wrap their head around but you know once, once you actually understand that it, it is actually relatively basic the two things I think are most important in an area that people would go wrong is an eagerness to just jump in and, and start making the wiring harness let's get some rolls of wire here some side cutters and, and crack on in in our wiring courses you know we're very procedural in this and that first step is so important planning and then documentation and I'll often spend longer on that element, particularly for a motorsport concentrically twisted harness because there's a lot of planning that goes into the layering. But I'll spend longer on that than actually constructing the harness. But the payoff is that you've got this document to work from, the rest of the process becomes seamless. If you've done your planning properly, you're almost guaranteed that the end result is going to work exactly as you expect. And just as importantly, you've then got this roadmap of documentation that in six or 12 months time, you come back, you want to change something, make a modification. Maybe there's a problem that you need to diagnose. You've got this to look at and you know where every single pinout goes. And that's really frustrating if you just sort of jump in there and wire it up and we'll worry about the rest down down the track. That is suicide. I did make like a really, really nice like diagram. I diagrammed everything so I can take it apart, put it back together. But somehow in terms of what killed, what like really disappointed me is the aesthetics. It, it just didn't end up looking nice. Again, that was a problem because the wiring available here locally is thick and weird and it's different than the gauges they specify in the US. So that was one of the issues that sort of, you know, pushed me back. But again, I think it could have been done aesthetically much better. I mean, I think you've got to also, just like YouTube, you have to start somewhere. Your first wiring job, I definitely, I know mine, was was not something that I would have probably been particularly happy to put out as an HPA course. But, you know, again, I've been doing this now for, for 20 odd years and you sort of learn some tips and tricks. I mean, I always come away from a wiring job going, it's good, I'm, I'm happy with it, I'm, I'm proud of it, but... God, I wish I'd just changed this, this or this. You know, it just could have been a little bit nicer. But I mean, I guess that's the that's the difference between my level and those absolute pro operators. Like, uh, you know, Joel at Racebeck is is just one example of those. Really, uh, they're doing it 
all day, every day. I just wanted to take a moment out of our interview here to talk about a course package that I think you'd really enjoy if you've enjoyed our chat so far, and that is our engine building starter package. This course or package of courses normally retails for $299, US but we've got a special deal for you. Before I go into that, I'll just explain what's included. And we start with our engine building fundamentals course, which, as its name implies, covers the fundamentals of engine building. You'll learn how the four-stroke internal combustion engine works, you'll learn all of the parts involved. You'll also learn about the machining operations that are generally required when we're building a performance engine. You'll learn about clearances and tolerances. Next up we're also including our practical engine building course that builds on the knowledge taught in the fundamentals course but this time goes deep into the practical skills you'll require for actually building your own engine. This is a generic course so it's not based on any particular engine, doesn't matter if you're building an LS3 with a supercharger, a naturally aspirated 4AGE, a 2JZ or anything in between, this course is perfect for you. We know that when you get all of your parts back from the machine shop, it can be a little bit daunting knowing what to do first and what order to progress in. And what we've done is broken down the entire engine building process into the HPA 10-step process. By doing this, each of those individual steps is relatively quick and easy to complete. And by the time you get to the end, you're going to have the confidence that all of the parts you've selected are perfect for your application, as are the clearances and tolerances inside the engine, meaning that when it comes to start the engine for the first time, it's going to deliver great power, great torque, and most importantly, great reliability. This particular course is broken down into two parts though, We've got the practical skills that you're going to need to learn, we've got the 10 step process and then we've got a library of worked examples which is where you can watch that 10 step process being applied in real time on a real engine building job and here we vary the type of engine that we're building in order to give you experience on a broad range of different platforms. The next course that we are including in this package is our How to Degree a CAM course and this is probably one of the more common upgrades people make when building a performance engine. This can be a great way of extracting more power and torque from your engine but getting the best results out of an aftermarket CAM does require the CAM to be installed and degreed correctly and this course will teach you how to do exactly that. Again we've included a simple six step process that you can apply irrespective whether you're building a pushrod V8 or a quad cam V12 and as usual a library of worked examples so you can see exactly how that's applied. This package also includes two full years of gold membership that will give you access to our private members only online forum which is the best place to get trustworthy answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our weekly live webinars where we choose a particular topic on engine building, tuning or wiring just to name a few and dive in deep for around about an hour. If you can watch live you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If not though you can review our webinars in our archive where we've got over 300 hours of existing content. This is one of the fastest ways to expand your knowledge on a wide range of automotive performance topics. As I mentioned, this package deal is usually $299 US dollars. You can use the coupon code DRIVING100 and that will get you $100 off, bringing this package down to just $199 US dollars. This is amazing value for money, but there is still absolutely no risk with trying it out because if you purchase and for any reason at all decide it's not quite what you expected let us know and you'll get a full refund of the purchase price. We'll put a link to that course package as well as that coupon code in the show notes. For now let's get back into our interview. 
All right, well, let, let's get to the results of this this MR2. Do you actually get an opportunity to tune it on a dyno, or is this sort of street tuning? Do you, do you have numbers? How did it all go? Okay, so the problem is I had to I had to move. I'm now in a different country currently, but I will be back with the MR2. I didn't get to put it in a dyno. I wanted to put it in a dyno, but again, you're gonna you're gonna see context now. In my city, which is the capital of my country, there is one dyno, and that dyno when I wanted to do it, it was sold. And he's the guy sold it as a used dyno to like a totally different city. And he's now waiting for the new dyno. I'm hearing he's still waiting for a new dyno from, I think, Germany. It's been three months now. So I didn't get to go in a dyno. So what I did is, I mean, this is pathetic. It has zero value, but it's something. I did like a, you know, like a street dyno session with one of those cell phone dynos that uses the the accelerometers the g sensors in the cell phone to measure it worked the same one that i used before i think it's called perf expert or something sounds kind of weird but i used it before it was pretty consistent it was like 10 horsepower always 10 horsepower less than i got on an actual dyno with my bike car built so this time i got around 237 horsepower it was sort of five horsepower up and down i did about five runs so I'm at around 200-something horsepower with 14, I think, 14.5, 14.4 PSI of boost, which is basically just what's on the stock uh, wastegate spring of the max beating rods, uh, my little budget turbo, which I like. The, I like the budget turbos because they're very budget-friendly, and you get to put a turbo on the engine and see what it actually feels and performs like and it gives you this opportunity to test without spending, you know, a lot of money. I have a lot of friends and acquaintances who, 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 you know, cashed out massive amounts for a GTX, for a Borg Warner, you know, EFR, the best kind of stuff. They put it on the car and they hated it. <laughs> <laughs> it's an expensive, yeah, it's an expensive mistake to find you've got the wrong size turbo. But many people build for the street, you know, they build for the street, but they they get inspired by by motorsport, uh, YouTubers, or I don't know, something. And somebody convinces them, oh, this is what you need. This is going to get you the power. This is going to hit. And it gives them this this peaky car that like explodes at, you know, 6,000 RPM. And there's a dog everywhere else. Yeah. And it's it's fast, right, in a straight line, but uh, driving it through corners. And these people want to drive through corners. We have some amazing roads if you want to drive through corners. And, you know, and there's zero traffic on them, like 99% of the time. And these cars, they end up sucking on this. So these people take these turbos and they and try to sell them. And it's really hard to sell them because nobody wants to buy something so expensive that's used. So that's why I went with the budget thing. And I put it on because I think that a GT28, this is basically a clone of, you know, an old school Garrett GT28. I thought it would be big for a 1.6. And it is as sort of what I expected. It starts pulling up at around 3.94, which is kind of eight, but it is good enough. I'm revving to 7,000. And when you're actually in the corners, it's, it is very satisfying. You can keep it at boost 80% of the time. So I'm pretty happy. And I have to say pretty impressed with a turbo that basically costs 200, $300, which is, I mean, to me is mind boggling. Wow. That's actually, that's a lot of turbo for the money. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's incredible. So, a couple of points I'll just just add into this. I think you know, we again, I've discussed this time and time again, but it is so important to focus on. I think these days, 
there's a real disconnect between people building cars and their actual experience driving the type of car that they're trying to build. And it's very easy to watch YouTube channels with, you know, cars making a thousand eight hundred horsepower. You know, you read blogs, you know, read magazines back in the day, and all of these cars to be feature worthy have probably got massive power output. That the reality is that's fine for a certain application, but you know, for a streetcar, the power is much less important than, than a white power band. And getting something that's sort of peaky and doesn't start really producing usable boost until after 6,000 RPM, you know, it, it's fun for a little squirt. But um, particularly through any windy corners where you need a wider power band, the, the car will be an absolute slug. So I think that that's important to sort of mention there. The turbo sizing as well, I think this is an area where there's absolutely a science behind it. You know, uh, Borgwarner's Matchbot is a great way of kind of not guessing about the turbo sizing and having an understanding of you know how the turbo will, will perform on a given car. But there is a sort of still a level of testing that's that's required particularly if you're competing in motorsport and you need a certain combination you know you might not get that right on the very first try uh, maybe it's as simple as changing an exhaust housing AR but you know may, maybe you might go through a couple of turbos and like you say that's an expensive uh, exercise what I'd say though 237 horsepower I think was what you mentioned there I mean this is a light car the AW11 so I can I can imagine that would be an absolute ball to drive good fun no definitely it's it's I mean I was mesmerized with it with the bike carbs it was this you know screamer typical naturally aspirated 4AGE you know you have to push it all the time you have to sit on the throttle like that's fun in its own way like na is fun when you because it forces you to be like real aggressive all the time but i had poor throttle modulation due to the nature of the bike carbs because let's face it they are designed to be op- operated by a hand and not not by a foot so it was it was kind of hard and i i have proper throttle modulation now with that sort of power my aim my original aim was a 300 horsepower honestly i'm sort of starting to shy away from that because i think it's going to ruin what it is now and now the car is really confidence inspiring you can really push it hard it's not too much but it is there is a big punch when you need it and i think one of the things that was a massive revolution for me was that i installed a quaif atb a limited slip differential some people say it's not a limited slip differential it's a automatic torque biasing differential but whatever you you, you get what i mean it's it's a torsen and, and I installed it, and I thought that due to the nature of the mid-engined anatomy of the car, the engine is in the back, so when you're powering through a corner, the force, tra- the weight transfers to the back, there, there should never be so much need for a limited slip differential. Well, there is. And it really, really makes a massive difference. And now you can do something that I could never do before, and that is by adding throttle through the corner you're actually helping the car steer. You enter this, and it's progressive. And I really haven't driven it. I did about 400 kilometers. I made out a video, like an update at about 270 kilometers. I did about 400 kilometers, and I really I really wish I could have done more, and I, I can't wait to get back and be reunited with the car. But through the corners, you can do this, what you can't do before, and it really eliminated this tendency of the AW11 chassis to, fee, to feel sort of snappy and twitchy when you're near the limit. Somehow, I'm not 100% sure because I'm not yet totally invested in the suspension. Everything is still this enthusiast level street testing and then, you know, fixing that but I keep it at that level because I don't have a choice and also because 
it, I think it helps also make that part of my content realistic and relatable. And, you know, it's amazing to, to see motorsport level stuff and be inspired and strive towards that. But when you're on an enthusiast level, you are constrained by these things, budget and stuff. And I mean, I think that that is, as you say, relatable though, because 99% of people out there don't have a, an unlimited budget to throw at their build. So it's all about what you can do with your resources to get the, the best possible result. So, yeah, hence, as you say, the cheap entry-level turbo, but, you know, it might not be a, a Borg Warner or a Garrett, but it's still getting a pretty stand-up result. Let's move on. Uh, I had a, a list of your more popular videos that, as I mentioned earlier, sort of getting up around that sort of 5 million plus views that I kind of wanted to dive into. We've sort of already briefly gone over the horsepower and talk, but there are a couple of others that um, I'll see if we, we've sort of got time to go through. One of them, obviously, you've got a, a lot of a lot of deep interest in engines, engine development, engine performance. And one of the videos that I found quite interesting on your channel was one about rod to stroke ratio. And I think this is another one of those relatively obscure sort of terms that people don't understand or don't even really understand exists. Can you talk us through it? What, what's important about the rod to strike ratio? And I guess start with what is it? Sure. I mean, what I just want to add is that in general, a lot of my videos, one of the popular ones, uh, are sort of feed on my obsession with, it's not just about building engines, but for me, it's engine anatomy and engine geometry and these things like at some point i really got deep into it and like engine balance many of these stuff uh, for an enthusiast really don't matter i mean you're never going to modify your rod to stroke ratio as an enthusiast i think 90 percent of the people won't touch it they won't move the pin and the piston they won't get a stroker kit many of them just won't do any of that you know but it's still really nice to to be able to wrap your head around it because once you wrap your head around it it really helps you understand even better how an engine works and then you research your own engine's rod to stroke ratio and it tells you something about your engine you know well i'll just interrupt there i'd say that indirectly i reckon a fair few enthusiasts are modifying their rod to stroke ratio and they're doing it by necessity and they're making it worse and what i'm talking about here is stroker kits because typically uh, with very few exceptions, stroker kits are a popular option for a number of engines and ultimately because of the increase in stroke and the fixed geometry of the deck height of the block, you are inevitably going to end up with a worse rod to stroke ratio than you did with the stock crankshaft. So I, I digress, let's get back to what you were saying though. Sure, I mean basically the whole the whole deal with the rod stroke ratio, I mean as the name says, it's the ratio of the length of your rod to the length of your engine stroke. And I mean, the way I, the, the key thing that I always, when it comes to this, that, that helped me understand it and how I try to explain it is you're modifying how much your rod angles or how much it steps out from its path of travel. I mean, the piston goes up and down, the crankshaft rotates, but the rod has this complicated path. And the more you make it step out, the faster it's going to pull the piston down. And if you look at an engine with a, with a, let's say, relatively high rod stroke ratio, for example, the 4AGE, which is like one point, I forgot. But th that's an engine where you have where the rod angles a lot and it pulls the piston down 
pretty fast. And you have other engines where basically you have you have a, a, a rod to stroke ratio where you don't have this, and the, you have then even better cylinder filling and a, a bunch of other stuff. And th- these are difficult concepts to explain without the benefit of graphics, which obviously doesn't lend itself well to to podcasting. But we'll try and put uh, some some images, or, or maybe actually just easiest a link to your video about it because we can't explain it any better than than what you've done. Uh, so people who want to find out a little bit more about it can. But I mean, basically, if you look at what we're talking about there and consider an engine with a, a conventional length con rod and then you know, look at what that would look like in terms of the angulation of the rod to the piston uh, if we had a con rod of infinite length, obviously clearly impossible, but that really highlights those differences. The subtle element is, uh, while most people understand that in a full rotation of the crankshaft, the piston obviously starts at the top of the stroke, moves to the bottom and moves to the top and that's fixed when that's just the, the, the engine rotation. But what's actually happening to the piston velocity between top dead centre and bottom dead centre, easy to assume that that's fixed, but, but it isn't, is it? This is something that the rod to stroke ratio changing that can affect the way the piston actually accelerates away from top dead centre. Yes, basically. Yeah, obviously. I mean, again, this brings us back to the rod stepping out. I mean, yeah, when you angle it, it obviously its relative length in relation to the piston and the crankshaft changes. So the rod sort of pulls the piston down. So if if the rod, you, if you modify your rod to stroke ratio in a way that the rod angles more, you're going to have less dwell time of the piston at the opted center. You're going to increase how fast the piston basically escapes from the area of top dead center because your rod steps out more it angles more and the more it angles the shorter quote unquote shorter it becomes in relation to the to the straight line between the piston and the crankshaft so the more you angle the faster you're going to pull the piston down and then the less time your piston is going to spend at at top dead center now that that can actually prove beneficial in in aiding cylinder fill at a certain RPM range because that faster acceleration away from top dead centre, basically what that's creating is it's increasing the volume inside the combustion chamber, inside the the cylinder quicker relative to a longer rod to stroke ratio. So that can create a higher differential pressure uh, between the intake manifold and the cylinder and that instant helping to aid cylinder fill. But there's no free lunch here. What works at, at low RPM can be detrimental at high RPM, correct? When you get to high RPM, you will, of course, want more piston dwell time at high RPM because you want to give the engine a bit more time, if possible, to breathe, basically. And the, the, the faster the piston goes down, this starts then going, basically not doing you a favor anymore because now the piston is going down too fast and you don't have enough time to fill the cylinder. So really, reading between the lines here, what we've got is a rod to stroke ratio. There's no magic number. It's dependent on the design of the engine. And if we've got something that's low revving, probably we're going to find that that will have a lower uh, rod to stroke ratio. But if we're looking at maybe a sport bike or you know, maybe, again, coming back to our F1 example earlier, much longer rod to stroke ratio optimised for that high RPM performance. One thing I will point out as well is that it's difficult to alter the rod to stroke ratio on a, on a factory engine because, like I said, we're, we're kind of fixed with the, the deck height of the block kind of defines, you know, really we've got to fit the ring pack onto the piston and that in turn defines how high in the piston the wrist pin can, can fit, which is the compression height. So that then 
between the deck height of the block, compression height of the piston, and the stroke of the crankshaft therefore defines the length of the connecting rod. So within reason, we're relatively limited with what we can do, but there are exceptions to this. And I mean, one of the, the classics would be the 4G63, 4G64, where the, the 64 is a, a 2.4 litre engine. It, it, it achieves this with a 100 mil stroke versus 88 millimetre. It's got a 6 millimetre taller deck on the block and it's a, a larger bore diameter. So that's how we get to 2.4 litres. But people in the, the Mitsubishi world will mix and match components. So a classic is to use the 88 millimetre 2 litre crankshaft in the 64 block and then, obviously, with the stock 156mm rod, the piston's not going to come up to the to be flush with the deck of the, the block. That therefore allows a longer connecting rod to be fitted to get the piston where it needs to be at TDC. Now we've actually got an improved rod-to-stroke ratio. If you want to go one step further, you can use a stroker-style piston where the wrist pin has also been moved up in the block. This is how people fit the 100mm crankshaft into the shorter deck 4G63 block and make it all work. So that wrist pin then intersects the oil control ring, which is fine, we just use a rail to support that. We've got the rod moved up in the, the piston, that allows again a longer rod, again improving our, our rod to stroke ratio. So it is possible, not all engines have that level of flexibility, but the 63, 64 is one that just springs to mind. Yeah, you basically have a factory available stroke kit, whereas... Other engines, you have to get one, you know, in the aftermarket. Yeah, correct, correct. Uh, while we're we're on sort of engine topics as well, another one that uh, I see a huge amount of confusion in is engine balance. You've got a few videos that cover this. So again, huge amount of misinformation around this. I mean, a lot of people sort of understand that balancing our engine components in terms of making, say, all of the pistons weigh the same. Uh, within maybe half a gram or a gram, that's probably a good idea. Things get a little bit trickier when we're talking about balancing the connecting rods because the connecting rod is not just a simple case of making sure that the overall weight of the, the rod is the same. We actually separate out the small end and the big end. Anyway, let's start by talking about the terms primary and secondary balance. Can you explain those? Primary balance, this is basic. Both primary and secondary balance is something inherently built into the engine. For example, the balance you mentioned which is, we would call this, what, the static balance of the components. Uh, you could even call it dynamic balance if you take into account, the, you know, uh, from a different perspective. But basically, this is something you can modify by changing the weight of the components. You can shave off a little bit, but the primary and uh, secondary balance is something that is inherently built into the engine and it's primarily influenced by the number of the pistons and actually number of the cylinders. So primary balance, this is, if you want to call it the, most simple, you know, from a physics perspective, you, you can feel and see primary balance by moving your hand up and down. And this is the inertia related to an object. So the piston goes up and down. And when it changes direction, obviously, it's going to exert an inertial force in the direction in which it was traveling before it changed direction. So I don't know, you, you can simulate this to yourself. And I like to make it illustrative, grab something, you know, with your hand, take it in your hand and try to quickly move it up and down. And you will see that the object, again, due to inertia, wants to travel in the direction in which it was traveling. The piston does that, of course, in a much greater, at a much greater level because we have much higher velocities than you were ever, ever able to achieve with your hand. Of course, when the piston changes direction, it exerts a force onto the engine. And this is why, for example, single cylinder engines have a 
horrible primary balance if you do not balance it out. There is just one piston and there is no other piston to balance that piston out. So when one piston is atop that center, you know, it's exerting its force upward because it's going up and then changes direction going down. It exerts the force upward. And this is why in a single cylinder, if you take a motorcycle engine apart, you're going to find some sort of either counterweight or another form of balancing that counteracts that force and keeps the engine balanced. In some cases, this, this creates a rocking moment because you have these two forces which are pointing, they are canceling each other out, but they do have a distance between them, A basically a horizontal or you could say, even, I mean, horizontal displacement between these, between these two forces and this then tries to sort of, you know, twist the engine around. So you get two cylinders, one goes up, the other goes down, you can achieve sort of a, a perfect primary balance. Again, quote unquote, perfect primary, perfect balance because it's not going to be perfect. The only way, the smallest number of cylinders that you, you're going to need with a conventional engine to have perfect primary balance uh, is going to be four because you have two going up, two going down, and there's no rocking moment because the two inner ones and the two outer ones, they, they will cancel each other in a way that they try to twist the engine, but they're sort of trying to, and, and this is going to sound stupid, but they're gonna, they're trying to break the engine you know, in half, but you, you don't have that. That's not a rocking moment. You can't break the engine in half. There's no imbalance of that of that kind now secondary balance again brings us back to our rod stepping out so as the rod angles as the piston goes from top that center to 90 degrees of engine rotation the rod gets ever more angled it steps out from its you know from its uh perfectly vertical position as it does this it pulls the piston down now to understand secondary balance we have to think about it and observe it separately from primary balance. We have to forget about what the piston is doing. We're just focusing on what the rod is doing to the piston. And as the rod angles, as it steps out, it's pulling the piston down, which means that the rod itself is creating this angling of the rod is creating a little force. Now, secondary forces are much smaller than primary forces, but they still exist. They're about one quarter. Usually this is not very you know, exact, but usually about one quarter of primary forces. And these secondary forces, again, they do create vibrations. And again, you, you have to cancel them out. Now, to deal with primary and secondary forces, so primary forces of a piston, when the piston is atop that center, the force obviously points out because the po points upward because the piston is changing direction. When it's at bottom that center, the force points downward because it's changing direction from going down to going up. But secondary forces are different. When the piston is at top dead center, the force points up. But the force also points up at when the piston is at bottom dead center because we are just observing the rod and the rod is perfectly vertical. I mean, it's not perfectly vertical in reality, but it's very close to perfectly vertical at top dead center and bottom dead center and it's fully angled at 90 and 270 degrees which is why the secondary forces point down so a inline force cylinder for example is going to have horrible secondary balance but really good primary balance however the deal is that when i say horrible secondary balance many people perceive this as something oh the engine is going to vibrate and it's going to fall apart it's not you have again other factors which then tie into this and for example, again, a rod to stroke ratio, the size of the engine, the size of the pistons, uh, all of this is going to dictate the mass of the pistons, how much secondary imbalance you're going to have. So you have engines which are 
inline four cylinder engines, which have no uh, balancing shafts for secondary balance. So it's just left there. And these are vibrations, which are small and which you can get rid of which with engine mounts or, you know, other clever little engineering tricks. And you won't really feel the secondary balance. It won't be that bad. It's there, but it's not something horrible. Whereas primary balance is much more noticeable. And something that's also really noticeable is a gap in your firing interval. Many people perceive this as we have to perceive it because due to human senses as vibrations. So a big gap in firing interval, which you can see, for example, in a V-twin or in a single cylinder, that it usually feels a lot worse and a lot more vibey and less smooth than, for example, a poor secondary balance. Yep. Okay. I think you've done probably as, as good a job of explaining that as we could possibly hope for. A really good example of getting this dead wrong is uh, back in my old workshop days, I had a customer with a, a Skyline. It had a built RB30 turbo engine in it. I think I probably told the story again, but doesn't hurt to share it again. And the whole time from when he came to me, it, it had a horrible vibration. And it was really noticeable uh, in and around idle, just, just transitioning off idle. I didn't actually notice it so much when you're up higher in the rev range. And we, we chased this this problem for, for a couple of years. We thought it was a, a clutch issue, a flywheel. We went through the whole whole thing. And in the end, um, I think it ended up having a head gasket fail or something like that. So we, we pulled the engine down. And uh, the reason for that was that whoever had built the engine previously had uh, five matched connecting rods and one completely different rod which was probably a hundred hundred grams difference in weight and the fact that the engine even ran as reliably as it did is amazing but i mean classic example there of of you know the the imbalance and how you feel that that's the only way to ruin an inline six because they are inherently quote-unquote perfectly balanced so you really have to you really have to mess it up for it to feel you know 100 grams is a lot i mean at what 5,000 RPMs, 100 grams is is half a ton. I mean, it's not, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm p- pulling numbers out of the sky here. Maybe it wasn't quite 100 grams, but it was, it was absolutely noticeable. The other element with this is how the engines are balanced depending on the, the configuration of the engine. So uh, in the inline four-cylinder, for example, there we can balance the crankshaft independent of the connecting rods and the pistons. Basically, we, we balance the connecting rods and pistons together, make sure that they're all balanced, and then the crankshaft can be balanced. We, we leave that to an engine machinist because it requires some specialty equipment. When you're starting to look at maybe a, a V8, for example, I think it's a little bit more complex there, and the mass of the piston and rod actually has to be taken into account as, with a bob weight calculation, which is then attached to the crankshaft uh, during the balancing process. Now, and another area that sort of, I think there's a crossover and again some confusion here is the purpose of a, a harmonic dampener. And we see these on the, the, the snout of the crankshaft. I mean, just about any production engine is going to have one. And the aftermarket, we have aftermarket options from the likes of ATI, ATI and fluid damper. What do these do for our engine balance? Like, I think people think these are here as a, a band aid for not balancing the engine properly, but it's a little bit different, correct? Yeah. If, for example, in an inline four, you, you really are never going to need the crankshaft pulley to do anything in terms of balancing the engine because it cannot do anything in terms of balancing the engine. If you were to put some sort of a, let's say, an offset weight on the crankshaft pulley of an inline four, the only thing you can do is create an imbalance. The only scenario where the crankshaft pulley can actually do something in terms of engine balance is on engines which have 
an inherent anatomical imbalance in them. For example, take a V6 engine, uh, you have two inline threes, and inline three has a primary imbalance, and these imbalances translate into the V6 engine, and you have some V6 engines, for example, top of my head, the Alfa Romeo Busso V6 engine. It has an offset weight crankshaft pulley and an offset, offset weight flywheel, and these do, in fact, they are doing something in terms of uh, engine balance. And if you, are, if you were to remove these and install some sort of solid aluminum pulley, you will, you will do something bad for the engine, definitely. But in an inline four, the crankshaft pulley does not play this role. It does not do this. And it's simply a harmonic dampener. And if you were to take, uh, not the just a, basically just a dampener. If you were to take a crankshaft pulley of most inline fours and you take it apart and inside you will see there's a little rubber basically a rubber ring a rubber layer and there's these two things which are one of the parts is encased in the rubber layer so these two parts can sort of move very little you know independently and this simply dampens out the harmonics created by the engines uh, the engine at certain rpm you know which occurs so if you take this and remove it from the engine and put a different pulley you are not going to automatically offset something some sort of balance on the engine and create damage or whatever but this is again it's very important to know what kind of engine configuration we're talking about sure so there's a couple of things you mentioned there the v6 with the external balance essentially on the the crank pulley as well as the the flywheel so we, we refer to these in as an externally balanced engine so very different there. I think the general misconception is we've got a, let's say the inline six, which has the perfect primary, well, can have perfect primary and secondary balance. So you know, people think, well, it's it's balanced, therefore there's nothing nothing more to consider. But the reality is that's static. When we've actually got the engine operating and we've got these, these uh, combustion events happening, and basically they're putting tiny sort of little torsional vibrations into the crank pins, and that is what our harmonic damper is there to actually dampen out, correct? Yes, exactly. So this is independent of engine balance. They're two completely separate entities. I think this comes, this thing that it's that it has something to do with balance, I think it comes, I'm pretty sure, from V8s, traditionally American V8s, like the Chevy small block and other engines where, as you said, it's external balance where the crankshaft pulley actually plays a part in the, balance of the engine i think this somehow spread into all other engines where in fact it does not but again what you mentioned with with fluid amp, uh, fluid amper and and ati and other and the other one is super damper is that like a model name of of ati or or is it a separate brand i think i think that is yeah i think that's the ati product actually i think it's the ati super damper yeah yeah it's like white and it has super damper written on it and you will see this on all high-powered builds because, as you explained, you are trying these. The more power you're making, the more you're pushing the engines, the greater the, the role these little, you know, harmonics that you're trying to get out of the engine. The more it will be important to have one of these on your engine because the more power there is, the more torsional vibration there is, the more stress there is on the components, and you really do want to dampen these in the case of a serious build. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right, we could go on for another couple of hours, I'm quite sure, but I am aware of, of how long we've gone so far and we want to respect your time. So I think we're, we're going to move towards wrapping this up. 
and we have the same three questions. The first of these questions is what's next and in the future for you? And I mean specifically here, driving for answers, you know, you've seen a huge level of success. I think you're getting pretty close to a million subscribers, which is a huge achievement for any YouTube channel. What's the what's the sort of five year plan for driving for answers? Where do you see yourself? First of all, yeah, thank you. I mean, uh that's a tough one. Uh, from one perspective, I, I want to keep everything as is and just just keep improving the content and not really fundamentally change anything because I just want to keep exploring interesting topics within the realm of engineering, mechanical engineering, car and bike enthusiasm and stuff like that. I would like to introduce, I'm now starting, I want to explore I want to start a little series where I explore different kinds of engines. I recently made a video about Sterling engines. I want to even go back to, you know, steam engines, do a little. I want to do introduce a bit more tangible content to the channel uh, in terms of these, because I talked a lot about these mechanical concepts and I did a lot of, you know, diagrams and drawings. And I, w- I want to see sort of that, try and make it a bit into practice. I did this to an extent with my four-stroke versus two-stroke video. I cut basically a four-stroke and a two-stroke engine in half. Uh, one cylinders and i i like that i i have to like the video myself in order before it gets successful because i really i like all the videos that do did get a lot of views i i didn't publish them until i, until I liked them myself so in the next five years i don't think there's going to be fundamental changes i'm going to try to make basically to improve the quality as much as possible and to try explore these little, you know, side areas where I want to introduce slightly variation, slightly different, you know, types of content with a bit more, let's say, tangible stuff and it more relatable and not just green screen and graphs and stuff like that. But there's going to be, of course, green screen and graphs as well. Sounds good. More to look forward to. Next question, is there any advice you'd give to a younger version of yourself to help reach where you are today in your career faster? And I'm guessing here maybe five years uh, of political work might not have maybe helped you towards your goal? Yeah, I mean, I like to think that everything, you know, even things that are that you could see as a losses and failures, I think they are lessons in some respect. And all of this time, maybe I wouldn't be passionate about you know engineering and engines and cars as much if i hadn't suffered in, in, in you know in that sense it was an escape it was a revelation so maybe that's why i enjoy it still you know and keep enjoying it maybe but a, a piece of advice is uh, i don't know uh, question yourself less or maybe question yourself more <laughs> i'm not sure <laughs> sometimes it's very conflicting it, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, some things should be questioned, but some others I shouldn't be overthinking. So it's completely useless advice. I'm probably the most useless, you know, version of me from the future if I were to meet myself. I don't think I could help myself. <laughs> so nothing good here. Sorry. I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I mean, because we talked about this earlier, and I think we've both experience this so so I'll, I'll just mention here which which I already said but uh, I think the actual saying is uh, don't let perfection become the enemy of good enough yeah you know, true it's so easy to fall into that trap of iterative improvements and you know never releasing a video because you can make it better and I mean let's be honest you're always going to be able to make it better but is it good enough is it high quality does it get the topic out there Let's put it out there and then let's learn from that and see the feedback. The other element there is I think that people that are looking at a YouTube 
building a YouTube channel will also use that as an excuse to overcome their fear of putting it out and and seeing how the public respond. But at some point, you know, if you want to be successful, you have to actually press press send and uh, and and actually see what happens. Next question and our last question for today: If people want to follow you and see what you're up to, how they best to do so, sir. What's your YouTube channel, your Instagram, etc.? Yeah, everything is driving for answers. It's I think it's separate everywhere. Driving number four answers, and it should it should come up. It's a weird name. Nothing else is called driving for answers, so there shouldn't be much trouble finding it. I am on Instagram, but don't bother. It's just <laughs> recycled YouTube content that I put out there, and I'm also on TikTok, but that's <laughs> recycled Instagram content. <laughs> So, so basically, YouTube is where you want to go. I first publish there. Uh, everything is there. I do some posts from time to time. I'm also consi- I considered doing a podcast, but since it's a one-man show, I'm having difficulties finding time to do anything other than the main videos itself. So yeah, I have a Patreon. I have a Patreon. I have a Patreon. I sometimes publish behind-the-scenes stuff. So that's also just called Driving for Answers. You can find me there. It's a, you can join for as little as $1. Right. Well, we'll, as usual, put those links in the show notes to make it super easy for people to find. And and honestly, I I would urge anyone who's got to the end of this, go and watch some of the Driving for Answers videos. I haven't seen better explanations of complex topics, which is, of course, why we're here talking today. Look, really appreciate your time. This one has gone long, but it's been great to actually get a chance to chat in person. So yeah, really appreciate it. And we look forward to seeing all of the great content you're bound to produce in the future. Thank you so much, man. Thank you so much. Coming from you, I mean, that means a lot. Thank you so much, man. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of Tuned In with Driving for Answers, we'd love it if you could drop a review on your chosen podcasting platform. These reviews really help us to grow our audience and that in turn helps us to continue to get more high quality guests. To say thanks, each week we'll be picking a random reviewer and sending them out an HPA t-shirt free of charge anywhere in the world. This is also a great place to ask any questions you might have too and I'll do my best to answer them if your review gets picked. So this week a big shout out to JC good chat from Australia who has said engine building and tuning 101 go to. Building my turbo Honda CRX sleeper, this podcast has been invaluable. Plenty of relatable, easy to follow information both here and on their online training platform for budget garage racers like myself. Whether you're chasing a thousand plus horsepower from your RB or Barra or just budget boosting your daily, there is something for everyone in these entertaining podcasts. Well, great to hear that you're getting so much value out of the podcast and if you get in touch with your t-shirt size and shipping details we'll get a fresh tea shipped straight out to you. All right, that concludes our interview and before we sign off I just wanted to mention for anyone who's been perhaps hiding under a rock and hasn't heard of High Performance Academy before, we are an online training school and we specialise in teaching a range of performance automotive topics, everything from engine tuning and engine building through to wiring, car suspension and wheel alignment, uh, data analysis and race driver education. Now remember you've got that coupon code, you can use podcast75 at the checkout to get $75 
$25 off the purchase of your first course. You'll find our full course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses. Important to mention that when you purchase a course from us, that course is yours for life as well. It never expires. You can rewatch the course as many times as you like, whenever you like. The purchase of a course will also give you three months of access to our gold membership. That gives you access to our private members only forum, which is the perfect place to get answers to your specific questions. You'll also get access to our regular weekly members webinars, which is where we touch on a particular topic in the performance automotive realm. We dive into that topic for about an hour. If you can watch live, you can ask questions and get answers in real time. If the time zones don't work for you, that's fine too. You're going to get access as a gold member to our previous webinar archive. We've got close to 300 hours of existing content in that archive. It is an absolute gold mine. So remember that coupon code PODCAST75. Check out our course list at hpacademy.com forward slash courses.